This episode of New Politics was released on the 14th of October, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, war breaks out again in Israel and Palestine, an urgent need for truth in political advertising and campaign donations reform, and the day of the referendum. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, professional ornithologist. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. War and conflict has broken out again in Israel and Palestine and this follows on from the attacks and massacre by Hamas militants of over 1,200 people last weekend and that's been universally condemned in most parts of the Western world and in Australia as it should have been. And this was followed up with shelling and bombing from the Israeli military into Gaza where over a thousand people have been killed and we haven't heard too much about this in the mainstream media. But the actions of Hamas have to be condemned and the actions of the Israeli military have to be condemned as well. And we have to condemn all of their actions over the past 50 years or so. And it's hard to know how long the mutual retaliation is going to continue for, but we can see that these actions are usually linked to political events in Israel. The wars in 2008, 2014 and 2021 were around the time of the general elections in Israel. And the link this time is Benjamin Netanyahu's push to force a coalition government of annexation and dispossession after months and months of negotiations since their last election in November 2022. And that agreement was finally made yesterday. And the Israeli military did receive a clear warning from Egyptian intelligence about an imminent attack on October the 7th. And Israel has got the most sophisticated missile defence and drone technology systems in the world, so you just have to wonder how all of this got through. But the upshot is that many innocent people have died, and we do have to keep condemning this. But the other factor is that so many innocent people have died on one side of the conflict. And between 2008 and 2020... Over 5,500 Palestinians have been killed and over 115,000 have been injured, while 250 Israelis have been killed and 5,500 have been injured. And that's a ratio of between 20 to 1. So there's a massive imbalance there, and that's an imbalance that we really do hear about. And these events are going to continue for as long as there's toxic politicians and political leaders who gain political benefit from these types of actions. And the political community all around the world has to do a lot more than just lining up the sails of the Sydney Opera House in the colours of the Israeli flag, which actually cause even more problems here in Sydney. But solutions are not going to be found if they keep siding with the Israeli government and ignoring the plight of the Palestinians. And this is not to condone anyone's actions, but just to outline that there's a reason why these events are occurring in Israel. They'll never be resolved without a better understanding of all the issues and if the political aspirations of one group of people are totally ignored. It's a difficult and complex situation. I think that as a analyst, 
we should be allowed to criticise movements and governments without having the recourse to racist or anti-Muslim or anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish rhetoric. And I think that to criticise Hamas or to criticise the Israeli government is not to condemn them outside of how you would condemn the Australian government or the New Zealand government or the American government. And a lot of people quickly jump to your criticism of this side or that side instantly means that you are anti or you are racist or you are anti-religion or but moods run and tempers run so high that these often become default positions. And so as an analyst, it's very hard to find a non-biased approach to criticizing the parties involved, not the people involved, not the people of Palestine, not the people of Israel. The Netanyahu government only scraped in again. Uh, so there's a lot of people in Israel who do not like it and who disagree with what is going on. Hamas is not Gaza. Gaza is a geographical place. Hamas is a political organization. Hamas is a fairly radical organization. There are other more moderate Palestinian voices who want their land back, who want a two-state solution and who want to do it non-violently. It's, of course, tempered by British evangelical thinking back in 1917 with people believing Armageddon was near and trying to hurry it up, which led to various states of confusion, really. And the establishment of Israel as a country was also underpinned by now really American evangelical thinking. And in the 60s and 70s and 80s, this really took off. You take out Western influence and things get maybe a little simpler. Whenever civilians are killed on either side, this needs to be condemned. It was not right for Hamas to bomb those people. It is not right for Israel to react against civilians or really the Netanyahu government. And it is interesting, as you pointed out, that it always seems to line up. Netanyahu is under investigation for corruption. They're trying to change the law in Israel that the government can override the courts in certain decisions, which is pretty extraordinary. And not in a fair checks and balances way, in a way that, oh, we find the prime minister guilty. Oh, well, okay, we've overturned that because we can. It's an awful, awful situation. My heart goes out to everyone who has been directly affected. I thought it was uh, inappropriate for the New South Wales government to light the Opera House up in any colours. I don't think state governments should get involved in international affairs. And I'd feel the same if they did it in the colours of Ukraine or the colours of Russia. It doesn't help the diplomatic process at all. And I don't want to see more Australian troops going to the Middle East, a pattern that we've seen since at least 1915, to partake in a war that is really not in Australia's interest, except to demonstrate to the United States that we will stand by them. There are other ways you can stand by the United States. Oh, it might take a while before we get to that stage, but of course there has to be condemnation of such an attack on innocent people and that's exactly what Australia should be doing. We stood in sympathy with France in 2015 during the terror attacks at the Bataclan Theatre. We stood in sympathy with the people of Ukraine in 2022. We stand with Israel in 2023. It's just that we never find the time to stand with the people of Palestine or colour the sails of the Sydney Opera House in green, red, black and white. And the Foreign Minister Penny Wong has given a measured response. And this was uh, a an abhorrent attack and the uh, taking of hostages, the attacks on civilians, 
the sorts of images, awful images that we are seeing, uh, reminds us of the security situation that Israel uh, confronts. Uh, this is a um, really a, a dreadful situation, a devastating loss of life. Uh, and I think we should all uh, be very clear that these attacks are abhorrent uh, and uh, Australia does very clearly, as I said to uh, the foreign minister, Israeli foreign minister when I spoke to him, uh, we do stand in solidarity with Israel and we uh, uh, recognise and support its right to defend itself. I think it's always very difficult from over here to uh, make judgments about what security uh, approach other countries take. We've said Israel has a right to defend itself. We call for all, all hostages to be released, but we also have a principal position uh, which we would advocate to all nations and all groups in all situations, which is we would urge for the protection of civilian lives and uh, restraint which uh, ensures as far as possible that that occurs. I think it is the case that if a foreign political crisis is too difficult to become involved with, Australia always seems to suggest that it's something that's too far away, we can't see what's going on. So apparently the situation in Palestine is just too far away, but Ukraine is not. Now, I'm not really suggesting that any foreign minister of Australia is going to side with Palestine when these events occur. Whenever Israel drops bombs on Gaza and the West Bank, Everyone suggests caution and restraint or Israel's got a right to defend itself. And again, it's not to condone or excuse any of these actions, but the same leniency is never extended to Palestine. And Gaza is quite often referred to as the largest open-air prison in the world. There's 2.5 million people living in an area that's 365 square kilometres. And just to give some context, Sydney is 12,000 square kilometres, Melbourne is 10,000 square kilometres and Perth is around 7,000 square kilometres. So the Gaza Strip is between 3 and 5% of the size of those cities with around the same population as Perth. So it's almost like a small block of land, it's blockaded, sea access is blocked by the Israel Navy, people living there can't get in or out. It's an occupied territory as defined by the United Nations and now there's collective punishment carried out by the Israeli army on the Gaza Strip and the only thing that this is really going to do is sow the seeds of the conflict for yet another decade or two and I just don't think that that's in anyone's interests. No, it's not in anyone's interest. And I'm hoping good solutions are found. It was gratifying to see a bit of the old Penny Wong back, that hyper-intelligent, measured, balanced, sensible person that she has often been in the past, that we haven't seen a lot of recently. But she, she, I thought that her words were exactly what a foreign minister in Australia should say. And I was glad that it wasn't some of her less balanced colleagues who were commenting, because things can inflame very quickly and situations can be made much worse. So while I've been a bit critical on Penny Wong in the past, I think that she should be should be pointed out when a good job is done. And I think she did a pretty good job and hopefully she'll keep on those lines. Now, I've always felt that a better understanding of these conflicts and the concerns of both Palestinian and Israel interests helps to resolve these problems and that's the essence of international conflict resolution and mediation and and the hardliners always say and that's just not in Israel but pretty much anywhere the hardliners will always say that 
conflict resolution and mediation, well, that's for wimps and respect comes from the barrel of the gun. But the barrel of the gun doesn't work in the modern world. Israel can't keep bombing Gaza into submission and Palestine can't call for the destruction of Israel or Hamas at least. And the media presentation of the conflict in Israel and Palestine is usually overly simple and one-sided too. And not many people understand the politics of the Middle East and in the same way as not many people understand what's going on in Ukraine. And going back further, in the former Yugoslavia or Rwanda, these are complicated political conflicts. It's very difficult for anyone to understand. And it's easier for the media just to simplify it into here are the good people and over here are the bad people. And that's something that their audiences can more easily understand. But the Australian media has also taken sides with the Israeli government. Here's an exchange between the ABC Sarah Ferguson and Mustafa Baghouti, the Secretary General of the Palestinian National Initiative. No one is disputing that all lives are of equal value and we understand where you are coming from. But I would like your human response to the events that we have seen over the past few days that have been reported by media the world over. These are not Israeli-only reports. Let me give you the names of some children that have been taken hostage into Gaza. Five-year-old Raz Asher and his three-year-old sister, 12-year-old Irez and brother Sahar Calderon, 13-year-old Noya Dan. Does taking children hostage destroy any sympathy for the Palestinian cause? I totally do not accept and I refuse taking any child hostage. Do you want me to name to you the 140 children who were killed in Gaza by Israeli airstrikes? I just like do to- you want me to tell you, do you want me to tell you, let me answer. Do you want me to tell you that I was shot by a sniper while I was treating an injured person with two gunshots and I'm still carrying these gunshots in my back? I am not going to talk about this. I'm telling you, let's look at the causes of this. The main cause of what everything horrible that is happening to Palestinians and Israelis is the continuation of illegal Israeli occupation of Palestinian land. So we never hear the names of Palestinian children read out on live television or hear an Israeli politician asked to provide a human response, whatever that means. But this is the way that the mainstream media frames the messaging on the conflict in Israel and Palestine. And there were also a lot of replays of process where Palestinian people were calling for the killing of Israeli people. And here are the sounds of the process at the Sydney Opera House. But we didn't see in the media any of those Israeli people that were calling for the killing of Palestinians and raising Gaza to the ground. Fuck Palestine! Palestine to my dick! Kill all Palestinians! All of them! Not one left from the river to the sea, Palestine will be deceased! We gotta wipe them off the fucking that's map. It, I'm walking about yeah. every fucking flattening them like a parking lot. Yeah, wait, wait. Flattening them out once every There's not, 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 nothing else you can do. I'm not stopping. Till all Arabs are wiped out. I think, I think now it's the time that we need to erase Gaza. And now we need to kill all of them and free Israel. All, all of their beliefs is killing Jewish and killing and murder our people. Flatten it. Flatten Gaza. Here's an interaction between the ABC and Josh Lee from the Palestinian Action Group, which is another example of how the media frames the news against Palestinian interests. 
Have you made any efforts today to identify by whom? Uh, these are people who are chanting, you know, F the Jews and so on, just to be frank, for those not familiar with uh, just how offensive some of those statements were, just trying to give some context to that. Have you made any attempt to establish who they were, where they came from? I mean, I don't know who they were. Um, what we can do is make it very clear, as we have, that this has nothing to do with the movement for a free Palestine, you know. And as, as I made it clear, we have a very long history um, of standing with all different communities against uh, the state of Israel's policies. So that's what we stand for. We'll make it clear again at our next protests on Sunday that those views are not welcome. So we don't um, condone that at all. We condemn that in the strongest possible terms. Yeah. Um, and as I said, we take a stand against all forms uh, of racism. That's what the fight for a free Palestine is about. I'll note that your previous guest referred to the Palestinians as animals uh, in the segment you just had. Uh, you yeah, didn't please, challenge him on that, no, interestingly. No, please, please respond. And, and the I, the, I'll just explain, Josh, you know, sure. that was a, a startling statement, but I was aware that we were going to be speaking to you and others in the program, and I knew it, it, it would be challenged. This is the sort of heightened uh, language that I guess we're getting at the moment. Sure, so. well, well, then we should challenge it. Let's challenge it now. He referred to the Palestinians as animals. The Defence Minister of Israel has referred to the people, all of the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, as animals, and they're undergoing a mass campaign of bombing uh, in, a, in a strip where 2.3 million people live. They've cut off food and water now supplies, including electricity, fuel, medical supplies. Uh, and the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has declared in his words he wants to turn the Gaza Strip into a desert island. Mm. 2.3 million people live in the Gaza Strip. And a few people have criticised us for the whataboutism and the two-siding of a conflict when this isn't the time to do it. Well, when is the time then? The State of Israel has massacred women and children and innocent people over the past 75 years. And as we can see, it's a ratio of 20 to 1. There's collective punishments and military attacks on innocent people for crimes committed by other people. And you just think, well, how long can the people of Palestine be punished for the sins of Nazi Germany or punished for the mistakes of the Balfour declarations or the mistakes of the British mandate? And ultimately, these types of states fail. And we've seen that throughout history, that countries that are based on apartheid practices, suppression of any part of their population or violence committed against people living within their own borders, they generally don't succeed. And we saw that with the communist regimes in the Eastern Bloc, the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, all the way back in 1945. We'll probably see it with China at some point in the future. You just cannot keep suppressing people forever. It never lasts and it, it's never good. I, I don't know that any peoples have come out better from oppression. The other big factor we're not really talking about is the control of oil. In 1917, of course, you had British petroleum being a big part of the negotiations in the Middle East to carve out various new countries that British petroleum could get hold of. And in the 60s and the 70s, it was Exxon, the American oil companies who'd basically taken over. A little bit of the Dutch with our shell, but you remove the oil from the equation and the stakes also get lower. So it's, it's complex, it's difficult, there may be better ways for Hamas to react. Having said that, there's a level of frustration there too that I don't think we in Australia can quite understand. Israel, of course, is always on the verge of being invaded by surrounding countries and apparently Lebanon started bombing Israel last night. 
it's not an easy or a simple situation. And all we can do is hope that it's the wiser and the cooler heads that end up prevailing rather than the hotter and the less considered thinking that prevails. And this is a very delicate situation for the international community, but you just do not need ill-considered commentary from political leaders or former political leaders. Former Prime Minister John Howard accused the Labor government of not doing enough to condemn the Hamas attacks. Susan Lay pretty much did the same thing during the week. And the unacceptable chanting, slogans, uh, you know, I don't want to repeat them, no one does. And linked to that is a real need for this government to reassure the Jewish community of their safety. And that should be done in in, in daily press conferences. It should be ongoing. It shouldn't be something that we just happen to catch in an answer to an interview. And Peter Dutton suggested that the Prime Minister was condoning anti-Semitism and through Sky News suggested that the government should release national security details. Here's the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, in response. Well, what I don't do is uh, foreshadow or either past, present or future talk about National Security Committee. And I'm I'm stunned uh, that uh, somehow people think that it's an appropriate uh, political issue to try to secure some advantage of. Uh, I find uh, Mr Dutton's comments... um, you know, I think they, they speak for themselves. Uh, the way that I deal with National Security Committee and national security issues is to take them seriously. You know, we, we haven't foreshadowed Chang Lei's return uh, before this. We don't foreshadow when NSC meets. We don't produce the minutes of NSC. Uh, that's the way that national security, diplomacy and intelligence should operate, not as a political game. These are serious issues. My government has had every single one of the appropriate meetings, forums, discussions, briefings has occurred. Uh, And quite frankly, uh, I don't intend uh, to hold press conferences and announce intelligence briefings. And I find it astonishing that some in the media expect that I would. Now, if people are suggesting to us, well, now is not the time for whataboutism or looking at both sides, well, maybe it's also time for people like Peter Dutton and for Susan Lay and for John Howard just to sit down and shut up because they're not contributing anything to the situation. They're actually making it worse for both the Jewish and Palestinian communities in Australia. They're not in a position to do anything diplomatically because they're not in government. And sometimes when you're in opposition, it's just best to follow what the government is saying and agree with them instead of always trying to score political points. If it's not the time to look at both sides, well, it's definitely not the time to score political points. The precedent has always been, or the convention, I'm sorry, has always been that oppositions don't criticise foreign policy or don't weigh into foreign policy. And that's been pretty well adhered to because often foreign policy has nothing to do with the types of differences that domestic political parties have. Some of you will point out, ah, but Whitlam was very critical of the Vietnam War. And that's true, but he was critical of the domestic response in Australia. Usually, uh, shadow foreign minister 
gets briefed, but only so that he or she is fully aware of what the foreign minister is up to and that they can work out policy and how they might do things differently. But often you can't do anything differently because there are so many other forces at play. The other country's interests, um, allies and treaties and things that the foreign minister really has no control over. So if the Liberal Party were any use as an opposition, they wouldn't be trying to make political points. And this is why they're heading towards total political oblivion. If you don't understand how the system works, you can never run the system. That's just a general rule of life. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music. Or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support New Politics through Substack and Patreon. No There have been suggestions that in the wake of the Voice of Parliament referendum that there needs to be some serious reform of election funding and campaigning. And the Voice of Parliament has seen some of the most outrageous behaviour from the No campaign. It's been a fire hydrant of hate, misinformation and lies. People such as Peter Dutton, Warren Mundine and Jacinta Price come out and tell lie after lie after lie. The media never picks them up on it. And that's just the real life situation. There's also social media, Facebook and Twitter filled up with even more hate and lies and misinformation, TikTok. And then there's people like Clive Palmer and Gina Reinhart who can spend as much money as they want to influence election outcomes. And in a democratic system like Australia, Well, it should be based on a quality of influence and informed decision-making. And campaign reform and electoral funding reform should have been one of the first acts of the Albanese government when it was elected in May 2022. The Labor Party did suffer badly during the 2019 federal election with that massive campaign of misinformation about franking credits and negative gearing. And if it's not prepared to learn the lessons of 2019, well, it just needs to look at what's happening in the Voice of Parliament referendum. And if these issues are not resolved, we can see that the tactics being used in the Voice of Parliament referendum are just going to be replayed in the next federal election. And that's just not in the public interest. We cannot trust, particularly one side of politics, but I think I will say that it it could happen with any side of politics. It just takes one change of leadership, one slight change in political philosophy, and you have a party that is prepared to cheat and lie and manipulate its way to the top. I am sick of appalling electoral campaigns doing well. And the no campaign, and I'm separating the no campaign from no voters. The no campaign has been deliberately deceptive. If you were trying to sell a car using their tactics, you'd be being told it was a 2023 Porsche and you'd get a 1997 rusted out Nissan Bluebird or a 1973 Cortina rusted out and not going. And if you complain, they'd say, oh, well, and whatever the result is on Saturday, I know the lies will be exposed. I know that for a lot of our listeners, they already have been exposed. It's appalling that they're allowed to get away with this. 
And I know too that one of the arguments in not having truth in advertising is that you can say something that seems to be very true right up to the moment you're elected and then circumstances have changed because you didn't have the right figures or there were other factors involved and so your absolute campaign promise became wrong. But that's not a lie. And I know it's hard to determine what the difference is between lies and truth in politics is, but not in this case. The voice is not about getting you home. It doesn't, it's not about a UN mandate. These are some of the more outrageous. It's not about giving a much higher proportion of tax to Indigenous people. It's not about elite Indigenous people, that one given by Warren Mundine and Jacinta Price, which was rather rich. It is an advisory body enshrined in the Constitution, so it's difficult to remove. Dutton's argument that the the voice, they would legislate it, that it would be better legislated, just means that they would do what every Liberal government has done with any Indigenous body, with the exception of the Fraser government, just legislate it out of existence, make up lies about the corruption involved, make up lies about how much money is being spent on it, and then legislate it out of existence. One of the more admirable things of, of the Albanese government is that they recognised the voice, which came from the Liberal Party, essentially. This was first conceived of while the Liberals were in office, was something that was worth burning a lot of political capital on. Not many governments will do that for Indigenous policy. So it's the heartbreaking thing is if No had used cogent and proper arguments as, and strong arguments, the best they could come up with was if you don't know, vote no, which is the most ridiculous and embarrassing and awful and immoral electoral campaign slogan of all time. Come back, incentivation, all is forgiven. Well, all of those things might be the case, but it's actually been an effective political campaign if that's what your agenda actually is. But the Voice of Parliament campaign is one of the worst campaigns that I've ever seen. The Labor government tried to appeal to the better side of the Australian people, but that was found sadly lacking. And that part was filled up with so many lies, so much misinformation, so much bad behaviour from the Liberal Party leadership and from the No campaign. But it just seems like it's a classic conservative campaign that feeds into people's prejudices that can be easily manipulated and none of this is a surprise this is exactly how we'd expect the current liberal party to behave or if there's no restrictions on what they can say or how they behave which essentially is copying directly from the u.s republican playbook just say something doesn't matter whether it's true or not just make it up and for a former policeman peter dunn does seem to tell a lot of lies and there is a truth in political advertising bill from zali stegall in parliament and that's to stop the lies in all forms of election advertising here's zali stegall asking the question of prime minister albanese in november last year Prime Minister, right now it's perfectly legal to, for political parties and politicians to lie in advertising for elections and referendums. I tabled my Stop the Lies bill yesterday to stop this. Will the government support regulating against misleading and deceptive advertising in election and referendum <laughs> advertising to ensure a fact-based, respectful debate on The Voice? The, the member, of course, is very sincere in her strong view, uh, which I share, that our electoral system and our democracy relies upon uh, people being truthful and people being able to make decisions based upon the facts being there and not distorted. And in particular, uh, the member has raised concern 
about the referendum on the constitutional recognition of First Nations people in our nation's birth certificate, our constitution. And that is uh, important because there's been a lot of misinformation already out there, including that somehow it would usurp the role of this parliament, even though it is very clear from the discussions and the drafts that have been put forward that the, that the member for Groom will not be the case. Morning. It certainly is worth examining. Our democracy is precious, and it is important that in the referendum in particular, but all elections and all deliberations in which the Australian people have a say, uh, that there be uh, truth in what is put forward, and we'll examine uh, the, members, uh, the members' propositions. And in his response, Albanese acknowledges that, yes, there is a problem and something does need to be done about it, but that was almost a year ago and we could have had legislation in place to combat all the garbage that's been promoted by the No campaign. Now, it is difficult to proceed with this sort of legislation. Changes to the Broadcasting Services Act and newspapers, well, that can be done, but what about social media? Zali Stegall's bill, it covers political entities and significant third parties, but there'll always be ways to circumvent this. And who checks all of these lies? Who reports it? And most importantly, what's the sanction? And if there's a whole flurry of misinformation and lies released during the final week of an election campaign or a referendum campaign, how quickly can you put a stop to it? By the time that something gets done about it, the election might have already been decided. Something like children overboard in the lead-up to the 2001 federal election, but it was a few months after the election that it was found out to be a lie, and that wasn't political advertising. That was just a campaign led by Peter Reith at the time on national radio and television and you sort of think well how quickly can something like that be acted upon it's almost a case where it's almost impossible to legislate against bad political behavior if one rule is set up there's always going to be other ways to get around it you're always going to get those who can do the loophole and we can look at peter reith who's got one of the lesser reputations who died with a legacy of being a liar of being a man who wasn't entirely trusted and who didn't achieve anything as a parliamentarian except to stop otherwise good policy is that really why you go into politics it's this small-minded, small-picture, cowardly approach that makes it hard to build on a political party. Where are the heroes? Where are the except the, the heroes are just attracting more of the same, and it's like photocopying the same document from the photocopies. So it goes from Peter Reith, and we're now down to people like James Patterson and Suzanne Lay and Antich and Babbitt. And I know that Babbitt's not in the Liberal Party, but I I think it's just appalling that we have this quality or lack of quality of membership. It shouldn't have come to this. And in 50 years' time, there'll be no books written about this era. There'll be no analysis of the achievements of the Liberal government because there's nothing to write about. And more interesting things have happened before and hopefully more interesting things have happened after. So you don't even get a footnote in a book except, oh, this is the generation that possibly stopped a tiny amendment to the Constitution that wouldn't have affected them in the slightest but would have affected an important part of the Australian population in a very positive way or may have anyway most likely would have so i don't know what they're about and funding reform that's a really big issue that just keeps being forgotten about and it has to be cleaned up urgently and over the past two elections clive palmer has spent 
$220 million on election donations to the United Australia Party. And that might seem like a waste of money considering that he only ended up getting one senator in Parliament and that's Senator Rolf Babbitt, who you referred to before, and he was elected in the 2022 election. But that's not the point. In the 2019 federal election, the point of Clive Palmer's $87 million was to keep Labor out of office and attack Bill Shorten every minute of the day on social media. And that mission was accomplished. And now he's donating $2 million to the No campaign. Gina Reinhardt as well. She donates to third-party entities, which then donate to the Liberal Party. And Reinhardt is funding the No campaign. We don't know how much, and we won't know until the 1st of July 2024, which is when the donation details are released. Now, there's two big factors here, real-time donation disclosure and reducing the threshold to $1,000 for anonymous donations. At the moment, it's $16,300. And if something like GoFundMe can have a real-time acknowledgement of donations, as virtually every other online campaigning tool does, it should be possible for political parties to do the same. And whether it's truth in political advertising or donations, Labor is the government of today. It has to work out what's in the public interest and make a substantial push for this because more of the same just means that we'll end up getting the same rubbish that we've been receiving during the Voice of Parliament campaign. And, you know, what a time to let all of this happen. What they should do is work this out, negotiate with the Australian Greens, David Pocock, Jackie Lambie or Lydia Thorpe and ram through these reforms. And Act quickly because this is really damaging democracy and I just don't think that Australia can afford to have the same type of campaign as the voice of parliament for the next federal election. We, we can't afford this. We can't afford the people who are getting elected. We can't afford the policies, the lack of policies, the appalling oppositions, the even worse governments. We need absolute media reform. We have a fourth-rate media run by fifth-rate, sixth-raters. And you were being very generous there as well. Yes, <laughs> and we can't go on as a country like this. The luck is going to run out and probably has run out. We need to reform public elections. Maybe you have to pay for your first one. And if you get 4% or 5% or whatever it is, you get $2.60 a primary vote and that can be used to fund your next election. Advertising spending limits that goes into you can only advertise so much. To have third parties like Clive Palmer, mostly he's failed horribly. His massive funding has gained him little to nothing. And Gina Reinhardt, and we shouldn't have third party entities. As you said, we shouldn't have third party entities being able to donate from other third parties. If we stop political donations altogether, that problem's solved. I'd have no political advertising by parties that are affiliated with other parties. So that throws out Fairfax and it really throws out News Corp, throws out everyone but the ABC. Maybe, maybe not. But the campaign should be based on fact. The interpretation of the fact is a different thing, but you can't have them based on, on lies. Everything should be sober and measured and sensible. Of course, the Liberal Party don't want that because they'd never win an election. <laughs> National Party certainly don't want that. And they'll howl about it, but ultimately the deck is stacked the wrong way for what we believe might be the actual will of the Australian people. The other thing we've got to do is massive education reform. We can't have people coming out with no interest in 
things that affect them with no understanding of how things work and with no way of evaluating the information they've got. We need to knock down all the education departments in Australia and rebuild them so that we train effective, efficient and positive citizens. Not form their opinions, but give them the tools that they can form their own opinions. This is New Politics, one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programs. You can listen to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can contribute and support New Politics on Substack and Patreon. And it's the day of the Voice to Parliament referendum. Pre-polling has been open for the past two weeks, but most votes will be lodged on October the 14th, and they'll be then counted after 6pm when the polling booths are closed. And the issue for me really isn't the result. While it's better that the yes vote is passed, it's not a case where everything on Indigenous and First Nations issues is all over, and we won't have to worry about it anymore. It's been the campaign itself, which is one of the worst ever as far as misinformation is concerned and poor political tactics, as we discussed before. But political parties need to learn lessons from any campaign, whether it's an election or a referendum. And there'll be a lot of lessons for all sides of politics, bearing in mind that it's not a clear-cut relationship between the Labor Party and the Yes campaign and the Liberal and National parties with the No campaign, but for the Labor government, the strong message there is that it needs to sharpen up its political campaigning strategy and and just be a lot more ruthless if it wants to achieve its political goals. And for the Liberal Party, well, their lesson is going to be that they can tell as many lies as they want and spread as much misinformation as they want. They'll be believed by the media and reported as such. And this is probably the clearest pathway back into government. It worked very well for Tony Abbott in 2013, but I don't think it will work for Peter Dutton. He's a totally different political character, and not that that's going to stop him from trying, but I just think that they're going to ramp up the misinformation and lies from now on, hope for the best, and just see where it takes them. I've said before, no matter the result, Peter Dutton is finished. He tried to make it all about him and his electability, and I think what it does is it's shown that he's unelectable. Either yes gets up, and his whole efforts have been for nothing, and it's shown that he's a poor campaigner, or no gets up, and the lies start to be exposed, and he's shown as a liar and someone who could be seen as racist. So he's done. I suspect January is the killing season. We could almost expect a new Liberal leader about then. And this has been more than just a normal referendum. It's not an administrative change to set the retirement age of federal judges at 70 or replacing a resigning senator with another person from the same political party. And these are examples of referenda questions that have been successful in the past. So it seems like we're very happy to pass relatively meaningless constitutional changes. And some of my best friends are judges. And if they want to work past the age of 70, well, good luck to them. But I'm not sure what the big deal there is. But the matters of social importance, we just seem to have a lot of problems with. And this referendum says a lot about who we are. And 
It means that we're frightened of change, very susceptible to scare campaigns, which feed into the deeper recesses of the national psyche. And there's still strong racist undercurrents in Australia. And this has got a very similar feel to the 1999 Republic referendum. And then going back to 1988, where four very simple to understand and very good referendum questions were defeated. And same sort of issue, the scare campaign, distrust of politicians, the fear of missing out, easily misled. This fear of changing a boring, uninspiring and out-of-date document, the Constitution didn't stop all of those politicians being installed in Parliament, even though they were citizens of another country. It didn't stop Scott Morrison holding five secret ministries. It didn't stop a constitutional crisis back in 19. 19- 75. And the Constitution isn't the Magna Carta, or it's not like the Ten Commandments, but conservatives feel like it's the most important document in the universe and can't be changed. And it was created by turn-of-the-century politicians in the 1890s who were compromised and wanted to set up a political document to guarantee the federation of the states and to please Queen Victoria at the time. Indigenous people weren't included in either the document itself or the discussions about the document, they were expected to die out, but hey, they're still here. So this referendum would have been a great opportunity to make a simple amendment to the Constitution, but just like the little kid in the room who doesn't want to go out because it's all just a little bit too scary out there in the wide open world, we're just too afraid of the big changes or even the small changes just afraid of the big changes necessary to adapt to a world that is changing quite dramatically. Yeah, the no campaign has been based on we can send things back to how they used to be. And of course, it's an extremely inaccurate picture of how it used to be. It was when everybody ran a bit faster than they probably did, had a bit more hair than they probably did, could stay up later than they probably did. You know, the older I get, the better I was type thing. And it is time, really, it's time to show them that their time has passed and to clean this out and to get back to sensible and useful political debate. Again, till we get decent people running the media till we get decent politicians who are prepared to work on principle and there are notable exceptions don't get me wrong but we have too many fifth and sixth and seventh raters who shouldn't be anywhere near parliament and again you're being very generous there i'm trying to be fair (laughs) till we grow up as a nation and stop pretending to be the important colony the deputy sheriff of the united states for example we're going to be stuck I think Australia is already a divided country on Indigenous issues, and it always has been, probably always will be. But it's up to political leaders to lessen this division. And I suppose that's what Anthony Albanese has been trying to do. But Peter Dutton and David Littleproud have tried to increase this division, and I think that they've succeeded in doing that very well. And maybe on this issue, Anthony Albanese hasn't played the politics hard enough or fast enough. He should have been... The absolute bastard on all of this in the same way that John Howard was on the Republic referendum, except being reversed, you know, not give an inch to Peter Dutton or David Littleproud. Lie to them, promise them all sorts of things behind the scenes, but then double cross them. That's the art of politics, duplicity. Treat them with disrespect because they've done absolutely nothing to deserve any respect whatsoever. And the other factor is that we now know what the limitations of this constitutional process are. And it's probably best to leave the constitution alone forever, like some sort of historical museum piece, And unless Britain becomes a republic. But even then, I'm sure that there'd be some kind of campaign against Australia becoming a republic. Or if there's ever a bipartisan approach to something like recognising First Nations people, 
although I'd say that after what we've seen in this campaign, that probably won't be happening for a very, very, very long time. We'll be stuck with a document that desperately needs updating. With the only uh, colonised country in the world that doesn't recognise its Indigenous heritage constitutionally, a small, frightened, broken nation that never wanted to reach its potential because it was too hard. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Thank you.